immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Innovate Audio. Innovate Audio offers a range of software-based spatial audio processing tools. Their latest product, PanLab Console, is a Mac OS application that adds 3D spatial audio rendering capabilities to live audio mixing consoles, including popular models from Yamaha, Midas, and Behringer. This means you can achieve an object-based audio workflow utilizing the hardware you already own. Use the code immersive to zero for 20% discount on all PanLab licenses. To find out more, visit innovateaudio.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast with me, your host, Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. Hi, Monica. Welcome back. Hey, Oliver. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yes, it's good to have you back. We'll hear about your travels just in the moment, but uh, uh, I wanted to cover just a few things I picked up over last few weeks. I've not been doing news without you because it's it's not fun to talk about stuff by yourself. Um, and let's dive in straight away. And uh, I'll start by talking about uh, the new AirPods Pro uh, supporting inverted commas groundbreaking ultra low latency audio protocol. For Vision Pro headset. We don't know a huge deal about it, but there are a few details. What we do know is that it's powered by the H2 chip in the AirPods Pro 2 and Vision Pro. Uh, and uh, specifics of the protocol haven't been uh, announced fully, but what we know is also that the audio will be delivered uh, with 20 bit bit depth and 48 kilohertz lossless audio with a significant reduction in audio latency. And another news item somewhat related to that on the other side is that the Razer, the PC equipment manufacturer, also released the noise cancelling wireless earbuds for Quest 2 and 3, also promising super low latency at 2.4 gigahertz wireless connection in addition to Bluetooth 5.2 support. Interesting to put these bits of equipment to the test and see how really they compare to a wired headphones, which I personally always choose and recommend because that's the only way how you can guarantee proper audio connectivity and quality. Uh, by the looks of it, there is there is innovation and improvement going on in supporting a smaller footprint devices that also wireless, which obviously probably be um, a preferable option for a lot of regular casual users of immersive technology. There's a couple of other things. Um, Audio Movers, which was acquired by Abbey Road not so long ago, released uh, binaural rendering for Apple Music. So what that means that now you can use the plugins, which can be used to check Dolby Atmos mixes within the comfort of your DAW without having to export and going through a lengthy process of checking the audio before it hits the platform, um, which obviously saves a lot of time and it's super convenient. In fact, you can use um, head-tracked headphones or earbuds real-time whilst working with your content 
and uh, hearing it through the binaural algorithm that is implemented within Apple Music, which I think is fantastic as well. Another piece of news is about BP3600 immersive audio microphone, which I have seen before, but I never, I've never used it. And I've never spoke to anyone who actually used it, but it's a mic that has eight uh, modules uh, extended from the body to form a cube with 15 centimeters between each microphone assembly. It looks like a, a hedgehog. So the partnership is between Audio-Technica and Flux Spat Revolution software. I've not checked the ins and outs of this exact collaboration, but by the looks of it, the microphone's output is seamlessly integrated into the Spat Revolution software, which enable you to utilize the, the recording for your project as a bed. And uh, last but not least is the, the launch of Sphere in Las Vegas. We covered that substantially in the, one of the previous interviews with the Holoplot CEO, Roman Sick. Obviously, the launch has been absolute success and you've seen a lot of images and videos all over the internet, if you're in those circles, talking about the movie, the U2's uh, residency and live performance and incredible visual display and sound. So yeah, these are the few bits of news that I picked up on in the last few weeks. Obviously, that's not everything. Caveating that as always, but uh, Monica, you've been traveling, you've visited quite a few countries. Can you tell us a little bit more about your adventure? Of course. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the uh, exciting parts of my adventure is I came to London and you and I actually got to meet for the first time in person. Yep. And we went to the Lightroom, which uh, um, we talked about earlier on in one of our podcasts uh, with Holoplot. Because um, they did the installation there and we got to see the David uh, Hockney exhibition and it was really lovely. It was really beautiful. Um, what did you think, Oliver? I, I loved it. I really loved it. Um, cool space and uh, um, I found it really relaxing. Just a nice, uh, nice use of space and visuals and sound. The connection there is the that we knew that the Holoplot had um, a couple of modules installed within the space because it's essentially like a, a concrete shell and, you know, to deploy audio in that way was quite challenging. So it was an interesting case study in that sense. But on its own merit, a really nice venue. And uh, I think just a few days later, the exhibition ended. Now there's a new exhibition, um, something about space exploration. Well, that sounds like that'll also be a fun one to check out. Yeah, I had I had a really great time. I traveled to a lot of places, as you said. I went to London, um, Utrecht, which is just south of Amsterdam, Berlin, Oslo, Madrid, and Iceland. Um, and then, yeah, just made it home and got to visit a lot of our friends that we've been meeting, um, you know, on these podcasts, um, some other friends that I've met in different other spatial audio communities. Um, yeah, when I when I was in London, I stopped by Lisa Labs and got to hear their system for the first time. And then I went and checked out the Outernet building over in Soho. Um, have you been by there, Oliver? No, I haven't. Um, it was pretty cool, actually. I've been, I've been to an acoustics HQ in North London quite a few times. Actually, when there a few weeks ago, um, they had like a listening session um, and a workshop, but not the venue that you mentioned last. Yeah, the, I, I was pretty impressed with the Outernet building. It was really cool because um, it, it was just uh, 
kind of the outside of the area is a bit enclosed. Um, they had projection, uh, a bunch of different kinds of projections. They had a Lisa system installed. Um, really interesting, uh, you know, different art pieces that they'd curated. Um, very immersive. And, you know, people kind of could just like walk in and out and, you know, have that experience. Um, so it's just, it's really cool to see more and more of these spaces popping up. Um, so I traveled through Utrecht and I visited a friend there. Um, I got to meet with Paul Holloman from uh, 40 Sound um, while I was there. And then on my adventures to Berlin, I actually got to go visit Mono, which has a 40 Sound system installed um, and got a full uh just kind of demo of a bunch of different really amazing pieces that they've built. Really cool space, um, very artistically driven, really just interesting work coming out of what they're doing there. It was really cool um, to be able to kind of experience that. And it's in the old funk house and uh, building, a really beautiful kind of building, really crazy uh, space for sure. You have uh, the river right there and a really nice little pizza shop that you can go to. Um, and I also got to visit Holoplot. Um, we had them on recently, a lot of excitement going on around the sphere. Uh, it was right before they were heading out to go uh, for the launch there. And so there was a lot um, of excitement building around that. And it's just been really cool to see everything coming out about, you know, how that opening has gone. Lots of excitement around, you know, the immersive full dome and kind of medium and uh, the spatial audio space. It's really just seems like such a unique place and um, definitely going to try to make my way over there at some point soon. And yeah, while I was there, I also um, got to visit Dark Matter, which has a spatial audio polyplot installation as well. Really cool. The main room that they had the holoplot install in I uh, had a, a cool uh, composition by Robert Henke. Um, really, really awesome piece. Really showed off the potential of the holoplot system. Um, and it was a really cool way to experience it. I really enjoyed that experience and getting to see how, um, you know, having a composer work specifically for, you know, the system, how that can kind of really showcase what the system can do. It was just very clear, um, re really, really uh, present. The sound really did sound like it was in the space. I flew to Oslo. I got to stay with my um, spatial audio meetup host, uh, Mariam. Uh, we're going to have her on our podcast uh, coming up here soon. Got to stop by NOTAM for the first time. So I've been helping co-host these spatial audio meetups uh, out of NOTAM. They're all remote um, for people to join. But got to go visit their new space. So they were in the con they're in the um, process of moving. So didn't get to see their full facility set up yet. But it looks like it's going to be really cool and really exciting space to visit. They have like a, a 24.4 channel system. And for artists that are in Oslo, you can, um, if you know how to use the system, you can kind of go in and you can use it. And they do some really really cool work with the community and, you know, being able to push the boundaries of kind of new audio technologies. Um, lots of really cool stuff going on in the spatial audio space in, uh, in Oslo as well. They've got some great support from the universities. Uh, got to visit, uh, there was Ultima Contemporary Music Festival going on at the time. So I got to go see some pieces um, and talks uh, that were presented during that festival. And that was really cool. Amazing. And then, <laughs> 
I visited my brother in Madrid. Um, but while I was there, um, there was the Lev Festival going on, um, L-E-V, uh, at the uh, Matadero Madrid, which a uh, really cool festival I hadn't heard about before, but got to experience for the first time and got to check out Helena Rice, who we're also going to be having on one of our upcoming podcasts um, and her performance. So I'll, I'll, I'll wait till we have her on to kind of go into depth about, you know, what we got, what I got to see there, but really cool stuff going on. Um, really inspiring to see how many new spaces are popping up in the immersive audio arena and all of the different tools that are coming out, all the different artists that are, you know, building really awesome tours and installations and, um, you know, just work to be able to really experience immersive audio content. So um, overall, a very, very fun trip. Got to see a lot of really cool things and have a lot of great conversations with different people along the way. Wow. What an amazing trip. I'm so jealous. So few people will have the opportunity to experience so many venues and to such extent. Amazing. Well, I definitely, I'm like, I recommend going to the Outernet uh, building if you haven't done so, Oliver. It's in your backyard. Yeah. I need, I need to venture out a bit more often. Our guests today are BBC R&D team, Dave Marston and Matt Firth. Hello, Dave and Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Oliver. Whereabouts are you tuning in from? Uh, so I'm based in, in Salford, uh, in the UK. And I'm based, uh, well, my lab is in London, but I, I live in Sussex. So a long way from Matt. Your offices and studios based in, the, in those locations, or you kind of uh, travel around and do work remotely as well? It's mainly remote these days, but yeah, the um, there's an office, an R&D office in uh, Media City, which is um, down at the uh, the docks in uh, in Salford, um, and yeah, we've got, we've got a facility in in London as well, which is where Dave's based. Yeah, I mean, I, I work from home most of the time, but uh, I think I've probably spent more time up in the uh, in the Salford lab than I do in the London lab these days. Well, guys, why don't we start from uh, you telling us uh, a little bit about your background and how you got into spatial audio. Yeah, so I, I came from um, straight into uh, BBC R and D from from university. Actually, I, I started on the uh, on the graduate scheme. Um, so at university, I studied audio technology, um, and then I joined the BBC in two thousand and fifteen. Um, so while I was at uh, uni, I, I had a particular interest in um, object-based audio uh, in particular. So, yeah, that's kind of how I found myself in this field. Um, also, you know, since since I was a child, I've been into software development um, and always had an interest in kind of music and in audio. So this was kind of the, the perfect role for me, really. Yeah, I mean, I suppose going going way, way back to when I was a very small boy, I remember my dad was... He built an electronic organ, um, which really sort of put me interested in electronics and things that make sounds. Um, so that kind of led on to sort of electronics being a hobby for me, um, which then obviously led to a taking electronic engineering as a degree. And eventually, via a couple of other jobs, I ended up at the BBC well over 20 years ago now. Um, um, so I got the chance to sort of work on audio in various different forms over the over the years, and obviously spatial audio came along as a, an area of interest, and uh, 
yeah, and it's been part of our sort of air, our team's work for quite a long time now. And I've been in the audio team ever since it was sort of founded, I suppose. I don't know how long, 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always been a making sounds and amplifying sounds has always been an interest to me. So both of you get to work in the R&D audio department at BBC. Um, what is that like? How, how does it operate? Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is and what you all do there? R&D split up into um, different areas. We call them, we call them applied research areas. Uh, so we, we belong to um, an applied research area for production um, and the audio team is, is part of that um, uh, applied research area. So in the audio team, we've got um, 10 full-time members of, ta- of staff um, and we've got, we, we often take PhD students as well, uh, supervised PhD um, projects. So we have six um, postgrads at the moment, but that varies from time to time. BBC R&D itself is quite big, you know, there's a couple of hundred employees. Um, so the, the audio team is actually quite a small section of that. So yeah, quite a lot of responsibility for quite a small team, really. Yeah, I mean, um, as I kind of suggested, the team, as I suppose, was formed about 17 years ago. Um, but basically, two of us started as the audio team as kind of a breakaway from an existing area of work. And over the years, we've done various projects. I suppose the most recent ones are sort of all related to the audio definition model, which we'll probably come on to later. And, you know, we've done sort of work with um, sort of the air production suite, which uh, Matt was key part of the development of that. Um, other ADM-related sort of stuff via the, uh, via the EBU. Uh, we've done some close work with IRT when they existed in Germany. Unfortunately, um, they were closed down quite recently, which was a, a very sad thing. And, uh, and you know, it was a great shame that a lot of shared effort was done by them in terms of a lot of our work. But over the years, we've done a lot of work in standardization as well. Um, it's been one of my areas of work um, is to sort of go and go visiting Geneva every every six months to uh, go to the ITU and deal with standards, mainly around sort of metadata, the ADM, uh, broadcast wave format files, um, and loudness as well, uh, which I had colleagues involved in that. Um, but we've also done a lot of collaborative projects over the years as well, both sort of uh, UK-based ones as well as European-based ones. So at EU, EU-funded projects such as Orpheus and Icosol, um, and UK ones such as... Uh, the Polymersive project and the M4 project. So the collaborations are, are the ways we can sort of make our small team a bit more effective when we collaborate with universities and other smaller companies as well. Um, and it's always great to sort of share expertise with sort of other organisations and it kind of, you know, we can have our lend our expertise to them and they, they can share their sort of skills with us as well. So that's that's one of the sort of areas where we make ourselves a bit more effective by by collaboration, I think. Previously, we've already hosted um, some of your colleagues and ex-colleagues from BBC like Catherine Robinson and Chris Pike. For the benefit of our global audience, can you uh, talk a little bit about what BBC is? Just for a context, um, it it might be worth elaborating on on this kind of iconic British brand and uh, what its function is today and, and how it's funded as well. Yeah, I mean, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, um, used to be called the British Broadcasting Company up until the early 20s. Uh, we celebrated our centenary last year, I think. So we're, we're funded by the licence fee. So everybody who, who owns a television set has to pay this licence fee, or they should do, once they get into lots of trouble. Um, 
this this license fee is basically our, our main source of funding. But we do obviously generate income from selling programs abroad. Um, most of you are familiar with programs such as Top Gear, which makes a, a fortune for the BBC and, and programs like that. Um, and also we, you know, there's other forms of income as well. But the license fee is our main source. We're not a state broadcaster. Uh, we're not we're not controlled by the state, um, we, but we do have a, a charter which gets renewed every so often, every few years, which the government obviously has some control over what goes into the charter. But in the certainly in the all the charters we've had up to now, uh, the charter says we must have a research and development department, which is really great for us um, because it means we we get to keep our jobs and get to do interesting work. Um, and sadly. Um, there's not many other R&D departments and other broadcasters around the world anymore. Um, I know in HK in Japan, uh, who we collaborate with, still have one. But uh, yeah, it's one of those sort of sad things that uh, there's less sort of broadcasters who are, who've got the resources to do the innovations that we have. So I think we our position is pretty important in, in, in not just in the UK, but in, in terms of the world, in terms of the development innovation we, we, we have, which we provide. Our hot topic today is something really exciting and niche, but becoming more and more of a mainstream concept. And that is next generation audio for live event broadcasting. So today we want to talk specifically about the next generation live audio trial for Eurovision 2023. Firstly, can you guys explain what do we mean by next generation audio in this context? Let's unpack these key elements, immersive content, interactivity, and personalization. How does it differ from standard broadcast feed and what user can change in terms of interacting and personalizing their experience? Next generation audio, I, I think it's a, it's a term that's been around for a few years now, and it's we're trying to sort of pin down the scope of what it really means. From my sort of point of view, I, I use the expression really to cover a, a suite of emission codecs. Um, AC4, MPEG-H and DTS-UHD are these emission codecs. Um, but we'll come on to maybe a bit more detail about what they are a bit later. I mean, some of the listeners are probably familiar with those. But what NGA Audio does offer you are these things, interaction, personalization, immersion, and adaptability is the other one I, I think is worth mentioning as well. Interaction and personalization are obviously clearly closely related. To personalize your content, you need to interact, be able to interact with it in some way. So, for example, you might want to switch languages. Um, so, for example, on a Eurovision trial, um, well, not in our particular Eurovision trial, but in a Eurovision Song Contest, there's obviously an international, well, a European-wide broadcast. You might want to switch between different languages, um, you know, between French or German and English and so on. On the commentary, you might want to change something that's if you're slightly harder hearing or you're listening in a quiet environment, you might want to say, list, um, reduce the background noise relative to the dialogue level. So that's a more of a variable type of control to the um, personalization. You might want to switch on audio description, should you want it. Um, or you might want sort of alternative commentary, for example, on a sports program, you're watching a football match and you want to listen to. A commentary that's passed towards your particular team. Um, so there's lots of scope. I mean, there's in terms of interaction personalization, there's lots of scope and not restricted to those particular use cases. Um, immersion, obviously, this being an immersive podcast, um, it's obviously quite important. Um, and 
NGA allows you to render out your render out to your particular speaker layout at home should you have a, a, a 514 layout, surround layout, um, a soundbar, whatever, and provide this sort of 3D sound. Um, and that's where adaptability comes in as well. It's not tied to a particular speaker layout. Um, it can adapt to a, any speaker layout you, you may have in your home. Um, and obviously this immersion is represented, could be by a channel-based setup or, or by objects as well. So those are the, sort of the main sort of features of NGA. Um, but obviously, as I mentioned, we tend to use the term NGA sort of really referring to those sets of audio codecs, which have their, have their own sets of differences and features as well. Uh, I don't know, Matt, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it's quite a difficult term to define. It's, you know, if you ask 10 different people, what does it mean? You'll get 10 different answers. Um, but yeah, I, I, I tend to, when I'm trying to explain what next generation audio is, I, I tend to just say, um, focus less on the technology and more on the features that it provides you. So what does it what does it offer you beyond traditional channel-based um, audio production? And like you said, uh, it's more immersive. You can interact with it. You can personalise it. It's adaptable. Um, it addresses accessibility needs. So all these things um, that take you beyond a traditional channel-based um, audio production. So I know um, we've already touched on this in some previous episodes. I think uh, Hugo, our uh, interview with Hugo Laran was one of the first episodes where um, we brought uh, up the conversation of the audio definition model um, and it's gaining more and more momentum. Um, can you explain what it is, how does it work and why it's proving to be so effective? Yeah, I'll have a go. Um, I mean, I've, I've presented the audio definition model in many a PowerPoint presentation down the years, so I'm going to have to do it just using my voice alone now. So it's essentially a metadata model which describes the technical aspects of audio so they can be correctly handled and processed. Um, I mean, if we go back in terms of the sort of history of the development of the ADM, we were starting to deal with lots of multi-channel audio files. We weren't really sure what the audio channels were. You kind of may have had a readme with them or you kind of had a kind of a general convention, you know, you've got a six-channel file. Well, you kind of know what order they're going to be in, but not always. And we started to think, well, we need to maybe add some metadata to this to sort of really describe what these channels are. So why not just label each individual channel as what it does or what it should be done to or what, you know, how it should be processed. And this is where the audio definition model kind of grew. It kind of became a way of describing the audio which you're carrying, not say how you de decode it, but you know, what it is so it can be decoded correctly. This is metadata model primarily to describe the technical aspects of audio. It's a hierarchical structure because if you think about audio, um, you, at the basic level, you have channels. You have a, you have a stereo setup, you've got a left channel and a right channel. But there's a bit more into that because we want to, those channels belong together. They're a stereo pair. So, so we've got what's called a pack in that pair. So you can see where a hierarchy comes from that. Start going up into sort of more complex level. You've got the higher level parts of the ADM where you've got a program and content and object, where obviously the program describes the whole program you might be delivering. And it may contain multiple objects, for example. Objects in this case are sections of audio with metadata attached to them. So it could be dialogue in, the, in, a, in a track, it could be music and effects as separate objects. And this, this approach allows you to be able to sort of manipulate, handle, and know exactly what you're dealing with in the audio. And obviously, when we've got a metadata model that's supposed to be, you want to be used by everybody, um, the thing has to be easy to be, has to be standardized, and it also has to become a representation that's very simple. So we decided quite early on to use the XML format, 
Um, everybody can decode that and parse that quite easily. You don't need any special tools. You can just, if you're desperate, you can put it into an editor and <laughs> look at it. Um, so XML was the initial, well, the idea of how to represent it. Um, and it was also tied in quite closely with the EBU core metadata set as well, which already existed. So we wanted to sort of match the metadata structure quite closely with the EBU core as well. One of the advantages of the ADM, it's very, very flexible. We don't want to constrain anything in terms of its the size of things it could handle. So if you've got a you know a thousand track file, you could describe it using ADM if you wanted to. But it, it could also represent very simple files if you just got a, a simple stereo file. Use some ADM metadata just to make sure it gets handled correctly. So it's not just for NGA, although it's very, very useful for using it in NGA. It's pretty much vital. It's broader than that. And hopefully in the future, where more sophisticated codecs come along, the ADMs should still be very much useful and applicable. And of course, being a standard, everyone can use it. It's a free and open standard. It was standardized in the ITU over many years. And therefore, there's lots of agreement in terms of what's in that. So all the companies who are involved in designing spatial audio tools, you know, have some input into how it was designed. Um, you know, there's lots of compromises there. Nothing's, in, nothing's perfect. Um, but it's, it's now, you know, it's been a standard for quite a while now. So people are getting used to using it. Um, standard gets updated every so often, but we try to avoid updating in a way that breaks, you know, previous versions of it. Yeah, hopefully, because it is, quite easy to use, even though you can represent things quite complex. It's, it's, it's helped in its, its take up as well. And it's easy to also carry as well. We can carry it in the BW64 file format, which is an extent, well, an extended version of the WAF file format. Um, but there's other ways of carrying it as well, MXF, for example. But yeah, it's, it's I think it's a combination of its op open standard, its flexibility, and how easy it is to represent has, has been really one of the keys to its success, I think. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of highlight um, the, the benefits of it being an open standard because there are there are other metadata models that you know you can use for this sort of stuff, but they tend to be tied to specific codecs, so that really um, hampers interoperability. So, you know, if you if you want to produce some content in some sort of format and then you want to use codec A. Um, for a mission, then you know that's fine. You could create it in that metadata model. But then, if you want to use codec B, you're kind of stuck because your production's in the wrong format for that codec. So th this is kind of what ADM is trying to solve. It's trying to be that kind of middle ground that everyone can agree on, um, universal, and it can be used by multiple codecs. What we were trying to prove with the Eurovision trial was how you would use. Um, ADM in a live production scenario. So we've already done quite a lot of work on, you know, things that are post-produced and there's a lot of tools out there now. Um, so you can create post-produced content. Um, but doing this live um, presents some challenges that aren't really addressed by um, the existing tools. So um, first of all, we need uh, different technologies because ADM is designed to be file-based, but there are there are solutions to that that enable you to use ADM in, in real-time applications. So one of those is ADM OSC, which is kind of designed for production controllers, and then you've got SADM. So what we wanted to do for um, the Eurovision trial is kind of put together this pipeline where we can go right from production. So we just received some stems from some, you know, microphones or some um, music beds, things like that. Um, 
pull those into our production tools, uh, you know, kind of spatialize those in, in, in 3D and then get that through to the emission encoder uh, where we can, you know, set up our interactivity options such as, so in the case of Eurovision trial, we had two commentary th- feeds. So there was the main TV broadcast commentary feed and then there was one that was going out on radio. So we wanted to allow the user to choose between those two different um, commentary feeds. So that's how we were going to prove the interactivity aspect of uh, ADM. The aim of the trial was basically making sure we had everything uh, in place to complete uh, a complete media chain from you know production through to emission and right through to playback on consumer devices. Um, and we wanted to trial that with um, different mediums as well. So not just to, you know, a smartphone application. We wanted to try, you know, other broadcast technologies, so DTT and HBB TV as well. So that was the aim of the trial, basically, trying to figure out where where are the gaps in that chain um, and what do we do, need to do to solve them. So there's quite a lot of software development in there because quite early on we identified some gaps in that chain and we needed to create some um, kind of bridging software to complete that that chain. Can you elaborate um, on SADM, uh, which you said is necessary to work with uh, real real time live feeds, and how that kind of influences um, what you were doing there? Yeah, so um, SADM is very very closely related to ADM. It's, it's it's essentially the same model, but you're chopping up the metadata into time delimited chunks. So uh, SADM is serialized ADM. Each frame of metadata describes the audio in that particular frame. So, for example, if you have a, you know, we're looking at sort of 20 millisecond video frames, um, which is quite a common um, dealing with a serial ADM, you'll have 20 milliseconds of audio go with it. And then the serial ADM metadata will describe what's in those, that 20 milliseconds of audio matches it. Um, obviously, some of that metadata will describe what covers the whole program, for example, program name and so on. But, but you would also have metadata that is purely relevant to that particular frame of audio. Whereas with the full-blown ADM, the non-net serial ADM version, the whole program is essentially described in one go. So you essentially get a, a time subset of, of the program in a frame. So whereas ADM itself, uh, as they said, is delivered as one kind of finished program, obviously that's no good for live production. Um, you're going to be generating that metadata on the fly. So you can only create um, one frame of metadata at a time anyway. So that's that's the um, that's what SADM aims to achieve, essentially. Okay, very interesting. Can you talk about the OSC ADM workflow and the integration of ELISA processor and also your own live binaural production tool? How does it all combine together? I'll mention the OSC stuff and yeah, that can come onto the binaural production tools. So, so ELISA is obviously an acoustics uh, product. Um, I know you had Guillaume Lenost on, on a, a podcast uh, a couple of years ago where he, he described some of its features in the original song contest uh, we used it as as our kind of essentially our controller for generating real-time positional metadata for the objects so the elisa allows you to move objects around in real time um, the way it sort of communicates is via osc open sound control and we one of the things we've been working with l acoustics and and other companies is is adm osc protocol which is essentially a a dictionary of OSC messages, um, which don't map directly to everything in the ADM, but 
they essentially can be mapped directly to parts of the ADM, primarily positional information. Um, so, for example, you have OSC messages describing the azimuth elevation and distance of a particular object, and then that that can be mapped directly to the similar parameters in the ADM metadata. So you haven't got to do any sort of complex maths or translations between anything in the ADM and the OSC messages as well. So the ELISA was just a tool we used. Um, it generated ADM OSC messages, and then we fed that into a, essentially a serial ADM generator, which received those messages and, and added in all the positional information into the ADM metadata. But we didn't just use the ELISA. We used uh, well, Matt's binaural reduction tool, which hopefully you can uh, describe in a bit more detail. Yes, the um, the live binaural production tool was something we we created in I think 2018. Um, it was a request from the BBC Proms. They wanted to do some binaural productions of the Proms, um, but there was no um, commercial software available at the time that could kind of handle the workload they wanted to throw at it. So they had um, 128 uh, microphone feeds they wanted to mix into a binaural mix. So we produced this tool, uh, and the, the way that works is it's, it's essentially got a large 3D panner interface on it and controls for each of the individual microphones. So it's kind of object-based in principle already. That was essentially just a controller that would output OSC messages to control a, a, a separate binaural renderer. It already had most of the code in there to be able to make this ADM OSC compatible. We just had to kind of change the format of those messages uh, to make it uh, comply with the specification. So that was our solution for an ADM OSC controller. Um, and then on the other end of that, you need some sort of monitoring solution as well. So we um, we created something based on the EAR, which is the EBU ADM renderer, which is a, a, a method of um, rendering audio according to ADM metadata. So we, we developed a little uh, monitoring application that would receive ADM OSC and render the audio according to that. So on the controller side, we had Lisa's controller, um, as well as our own controller based on the live binaural production tool. And then uh, on the kind of local monitoring side, we had um, the Lisa processor, but also we had our um, monitoring solution that was based on the EAR. Yeah, the, the idea was to see um, whether they could interoperate together. And uh, yes, luckily they did. They, they seem to work quite well together. So we must have done something right. <laughs> Sort of points out, you know, the need for the standardization of the ADM OSC. You know, we've we've standardized a bit of it, but it's not a proper standard yet. It's not gone through a standards body, but this is some work we're, you know, looking at trying to do um, is to turn it into a proper standard, um, expand it. And we actually had a, a workshop in Paris uh, a few weeks ago um, looking at, you know, how we can develop the ADM OSC further. And there's lots of companies attended that, and we had some really good sort of discussions and uh experiments to, to see where it was going to head. So were you happy with the overall results of this kind of workflow? Um, were there any trade-offs you had to make or anything on your wish list for the next uh, test run? Yeah, it, it went well, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, we, ha we had to make quite a few compromises. So the so the, the key part in the middle was the, the piece of software that received the ADM OSC messages um, and generated the serial ADM metadata. And that was rather a sort of spoke bit of development purely for the Eurovision trial. So everything was kind of geared towards the setup we had, you know, 
particularly with the sort of channel layout we've got received from the Eurovision Song Contest mixing desks. And the other thing we actually had to um, interface with was, was the, the Dolby setup because we had Dolby there. Um, they were kind of um, came along with their encoder uh, equipment. Um, so we had to provide them with serial ADM messages they could cope with. We had to find some mapping between what we were receiving to what we could send to, to Dolby setup. And our software managed to do all that, but it was very much programmed particularly for that trial. Um, the initial part of the serial ADM messages we generated were what we call a production profile, which were very broad. I think that we had 46 channels of audio and quite relatively com- complex serial ADM metadata. We tried to generate something which was quite immersive. We had audience microphones to give us some height. Um, and we obviously we had separate feeds for two different types of commentary, the TV commentary and the radio commentary, which was the interactive part. But what we could send to Dolby was um, something much much more restrained. So we had to keep the two commentaries separate as separate objects, um, but we had to sort of essentially damix everything else into a single channel bed, um, and we used a 5.1.4 channel bed for that. So overall, we sent them a 12-channel setup. So we started with a 46-channel setup and went to a 12-channel setup for their system. Um, and that kind of downmixing was very much sort of hard-coded into our into our software. We would have liked something that was a bit more kind of generalized, um, but we didn't have time to develop anything that was more sophisticated than that. But what we actually sent them um, when we first connected it up to the Dolby encoder setup, given that we never actually delivered them serial ADM metadata before, um, and we sent it to them over over a MADI setup uh, using a, a SMPT transport protocol. First time we tried it, it worked first time, which was brilliant. You know, <laughs> I certainly wasn't expecting it to work first time. Um, our Dolby colleagues just sort of said, yeah, yeah, we're getting that metadata through. It all seems to be correct. And then, you know, the sound came out their end and um, they they played it back, immersive sound over their, over their playout system, um, which was really satisfying. It kind of proves that if you do agree, you know, standards and protocols and everything beforehand and you implement them correctly, you can get things working. Um, so that was really satisfying. But what we really want to push for in the future is, is this middle bit, this getting this conversion from initial set of production serial ADM, get that kind of more generalized. And then this, what we call conversion from the production side of the ADM into a smaller emission standard. And the bit in between, we, we, we kind of call a squeezer, which squeezes it all down. We need to decide, design something that's more generalized that could be used in any any sort of use case rather than just the original song contest. So that's where I think some of our future work lies. Don't know, Matt, if you've got any, anything to add to that. Overall, you know, the the outcome of the trial was was brilliant. It, we we kind of proved what we we set out to prove, and we were able to you know show some um, personalization features on the on the consumer devices, and um, also adaptability to different devices as well. So, um, obviously, we just had a, a normal consumer grade uh, television that had uh, AC four decoder in it. Um, but it only had built-in, you know, stereo speakers, so it wasn't particularly immersive, you know. But um, just by plugging in a Ambio soundbar to that, which is one of these, you know, beam-forming immersive soundbars, you you instantly got a a much more um, enveloping experience. So yeah, that that kind of proved how the content could adapt to the capabilities of different devices. I just wanted to kind of summarize the whole thing because we've gone through a lot of technical terminology there, but for for an average user, the key takeaways are the fact that um, you can watch any kind of content eventually, ideally, real time. You receive the signal that will adapt to whatever 
sound system you have available, in, maybe including even binaural audio over headphones or whatever channel-based or soundbar, as you mentioned, they can personalize things further by selecting what kind of commentary they want to choose. But from that, we can extrapolate maybe there are multiple languages, maybe there's a real-time interpretation if it's an international event. Maybe there's even audio description components that could be engaged for, for certain users uh, with some additional information. And I guess working with so many channels of audio, microphones that are placed around the venue, maybe there are further personalization opportunities where maybe you can be closer to the stage or maybe you can you can be further away from the stage, more like in the audience and getting the slightly different vibe if you choose so. So just, you know, just like in a game, you can have more music, more environment and or more sound effects, you know, that maybe there's some room for those kind of customizations. Am I, am I thinking in the right direction? Are these the kind of uh, set of features that you really can deliver? And it's just a case of um, global adoption and kind of tidying it up in a, in a neat standard that everyone can use going forward? Or there's loads of things that you feel there's still we need to explore, um, let alone test and implement? Yeah, I mean, those are certainly features we're, we're looking at. I mean, even just with the original Song Contest trial, um, we kind of demonstrated the sort of immersion, you know, of the, you know, of the, of the main audio and the ability to switch between the different commentary feeds. But one of the other things we could have added to it, for example, was producing adjusting the balance of the audience uh, level relative to the, the music and the, and the stage, which would have been possible, I, I think. And as you, as you mentioned, maybe adjusting the sound of the audience because we did have all the load of uh, direct uh, microphone feeds from the audience. So, you know, we could have adjusted the sort of how the audience sounded or where it seemed to be coming from. So that was would have could have been another option. So all that would have been possible with the sort of object based production we were we were doing, um, and we can, we can go probably go back and do that with the stuff we captured because we captured all the audio from the trial. So we we hope to reuse it for doing lots of other experiments as well in the, in the near future, just to try new things out. Um, for example, obviously we we had Dolby there with the AC4 encoder, but obviously you want to test the test whether it works on MPEG H, for example. So. Um, Fran Offer, um, who who obviously worked a lot on MPEG H, um, can have access to some of the audio, so they can have some experiments to try out how they would decode it and, and present it as well. So we can see that we're not tied to a particular single codec for this type of setup. With the ADM, you can you can play it out on any any codec you you, d- you so desire. So it's all about you know draw the line in terms of the compromises about what the capabilities are the output systems as well. So for example, if you're limited to um, you know a number of channels you might want to sort of compromise on the immersion or languages to be selected or you might want to say okay we'll just stick to one language but have more immersion so it's also finding that balance as well which might not also might not be particularly clear in terms of what you do in terms of broadcast or or, or delivery but if you do your full-blown object-based production at the beginning it's all there to do it to work from uh, you're not committed early on to a particular setup i think that's really important when you do object-based production your flexibility is is there in terms of the production and you're not tied to a particular setup well this is all really exciting stuff i know you know ever since i kind of heard about the adm osc workflow and um trying to build that as a standard just for being able to make it easier to do these things as it's currently, um, yeah, you're having to piece together a lot of different components and hope that they'll work. Um, So it's really exciting that uh, you all have 
at least prove a, the test case that there there's some headway being made and some potential for you know finding some standards around how to you know distribute immersive audio in a live context. As we start wrapping up now, tell me your opinion on the future of spatial audio in the live sound industry and the convergence of technologies that's currently happening. And if you want, you, you can flip the question and maybe answer it in a way of future plans specifically. Maybe there is another event that you'd like to cover that you where you're going to be deploying similar setup with, with some improvements or new features that you will test. Immediate future, your personal roadmap as a team, as a department, and kind of what kind of things you see happening or even um, directly involved with. So what we were trying with the Eurovision trial was um, using serial ADM over um, AES3, essentially, over MADI. Um, and that's using a, a SIMPTI standard. There's also SIMPTI standards for carrying that metadata over IP, which is something we've not really explored yet. And um, particularly with a lot of our um, uh, broadcast infrastructure moving towards IP, it's something we really need to focus on. So that's that's potentially something we're going to look into for maybe a future trial in you know maybe a year or so's time yeah so obviously we mentioned about sort of generalizing the tools that we've generated so far so we want to do really more development work i think before we do another trial um i don't think there's, there's no point in doing successive trials on the same piece of you know kit or or software we've we've done so i think we want to some more development into the serial adm get it look at it doing it over ip generalize the you know, the algorithms and so on, and do another live, live trial sometime in the future. I mean, personally, I, I fancy doing something different from live music. I, I quite like to do a sport event. Getting into sport might be quite tricky, though. Um, it's it's maybe a bit of a harder harder sort of area to get into than the music, but we've still got music options as well. So um, we, we're going to keep our options open, but it won't be an immediate thing. I think it'll be, you know, a good year down the line maybe before we start looking at a different trial but um we'd like to make sure we've got some plenty of de- more development under our belt before we we do another one so we, we we at least take it to the next stage as it were all right so what is the best way to find out more about yourself and the work you do bbc r&d has a, a blog uh, which is on the bbc website um, just type it into a search engine bbc r&d blog i think it's usually the top link um, and that's that's got lots of articles from all the different areas of R&D. It's fairly regularly updated. Um, so when we do a large piece of work, for example, the Eurovision stuff, there's a, a blog post on that. Um, quite active on social media as well. So there's a BBC R&D account on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and so forth. Um, and more recently on Mastodon as well. So um, again, if you, if you uh, Google the BBC R&D blogs, uh, there's some uh, links to the uh, Mastodon uh, there. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're government funded, uh, the the tools that you develop actually available to the public, or that's not always the case? Uh, it's usually the case. We try to open source as much as we can. Um, so, for example, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, the, the EA production suite, which is kind of designed for file-based ADM. Uh, kind of a post-production tool uh, that's completely open source. It's also, you know, if you uh, if you just want the builds, then you can download the builds for free as well. Um, that's fairly regularly updated with new features. Um, 
also we've got we've got lots of open source libraries for the you know the developer types so if you want to work with ADM we've uh, developed uh, a library for handling ADM metadata and um, also EA which is the renderer for ADM there's a library to handle that um, a library to handle the BW64 file format as well so all these things are open source um yep you can usually find those just on the uh, BBC GitHub page yeah, I think yeah, I think Matt, Matt's covered all the stuff um, in terms of what's available. Obviously, content is slightly trickier. Um, I know for the Eurovision Song Contest stuff, I mean, we can share it with sort of partners, but um, it'd be very selective what we can share from a Eurovision Song Content. <laughs> it's not all equal within there in terms of its rights. Uh, so yeah, content's trickier, but software itself, we always look to sort of open source things as much as possible. Sometimes things get tricky when we implement something that's got a patent on it or something like that, and it gets a bit harder. But most of the stuff we try to avoid, sort of trickier areas like that. But um, it's always it's always our aim to open source, keep things free as much as we can. Very cool. And as always, what piece of advice could you give that helped you in your careers? Um, I'd say for me, um, when I came into the BBC, I came in straight from university. Um, but I think... My sandwich year was gave me a significant edge um, during the kind of application process. So uh, I did my sandwich year at Calrec, which uh, um, you know make the big broadcast mixing desks, um, and I think yeah that really helps. You know, um, also if you do any sort of extracurricular activity that shows an aptitude for this sort of stuff, so you know you might be involved in like the um, um, student radio, anything like that, um, but anything that shows an aptitude for R and D. So if you, you know, you like to do like little hackathons, anything like that, um, and it's it's worth noting as well that the, the staff we've got at BBC R and D, they've got a very wide range of uh, of skills. So it's not just you know people who are um, you know with computer science degrees. You know we've got people who have you know, experiencing HCI or user experience, uh, psychologists, things like that. So it's really, there's there's a lot of skills uh, across the department. It's not it's not just all uh, computer types. Yeah, and that, yeah, I agree. Is we've got a quite a range of range of people, and it's you, you don't have to do it when you're young either. You know, we, we've got people who've, who've joined the department, uh, you know, slightly later in life after having different career paths, um, but. They all got one thing in common is that they've got really interested in what they're doing and they've experimented and played with these things in their own personal life. And I think that really helps. Um, but in terms of doing a kind of in terms of being in work as well, in, in the job itself, I mean, it's something I've always felt that um, if you've got a real urge to try something out, I would say just get on and do it. Don't wait for approval or go around, oh, should I do this? Should I do this? If you feel it's going to be really important and it's going to have an impact. Just get on and do it, play with it, and experiment and try things out. I mean, that's kind of how the ADM started, really. We uh, we just had a few discussions about problems, and I thought, well, let's go away and just work something out, and we just did it. We didn't start of drawing up big plans on what we should do. We just got on and did it, and um, it kind of worked out in the end. And also, you know, particularly in the world of audio, if it's don't always assume there's one way of doing something as well. There's lots of different approaches to something which can have you know, equally good outcomes and don't be, you know, afraid to try things out and don't be afraid of failure as well. You know, you learn from failure and just trying things out. So just be brave and just play around until you get something that works. But don't worry if it doesn't. 
Dave, Matt, been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It was great to have you on. Thanks for sharing all of your knowledge. That's a lot of knowledge there. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.